0: Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 128. I'm your host, Derek Moore. And this week, what are we talking about? Well, we're going to ask the question, or try and answer the question, are historical returns useful or useless to investors? What what can you actually derive from these? What what types of things can you take from? Um, How far back can you go? Are there any problems with using historical returns? Um, and, And this really came about... A few listener questions who have been asking this, and, and really it, it came about more of, hey look you know on the bond side of this when looking at these historical returns on bonds and, but bonds aren't really paying anything in interest right now, so, I thought you know why not do an episode on, on this very aspect, and when you think about historical returns, it it's easier now to get these, so let's just you know think about the S and P 500, and you can go back now. Uh, looking online, and there's different data sets. One of the ones that I like to use is Professor Oswath Damodaran at NYU. Uh, I'll link to his uh, his website, his blog. Uh, he always puts out some interesting content. Um, but And by the way, he uh, if you ever want to know anything about valuation, he's, quote-unquote, the dean of valuation, they call him. So he, he teaches uh, uh, in the NYU Business School, and he teaches... Uh, uh, you know, intrinsic valuation, discounted cash flow, all that stuff. He put some some different content out online as well. But his data, I believe, goes back to either, I don't know, 1926. I should have looked at it before the podcast, but around 1926 uh, or so. Uh, so, you know, rather recent in a weird way. I know it's uh, getting on 100 years now of data. Uh, the other data sets that are out there, I'm not sure if he updates it anymore, uh, but uh, Yale's professor, Robert Schiller. And I remember he wrote the book, what was it called? Irrational Exuberance. I'll put a link to that book. But he did a lot of work on the historical side. I don't know, I'll have to look at, I'll put a link to, to his data. I'm not sure if he still updates it, but he had stuff back to 1871. And then Jeremy Siegel, I don't think it's online anywhere, but he wrote a book, Stocks for the Long Run. And, and he's a professor at Wharton, which is uh, the business school at Penn? He, in his book, he went back to eighteen o two, and you know he looked at stocks, bonds, bills, gold, the U.S. dollar, and then of course you know the Schiller data and the Demeter data. They look at stocks and bonds and bills as well, but he didn't publish his data, not that I could find anywhere. But I remember in the book, uh, he put, you know, he went back to eighteen o two. Interestingly enough. And, and I think he's, uh, he's talked about, you know, this data and is it reliable, is it not reliable, right? You know, you think about trying to find data from, imagine trying to find something from, you know, 1805. It's not like everything was just online back then. But he, um, Jason Zweig, I mean, it's gotta be a long time ago. He actually had a conversation with uh, Professor Siegel about the data. And I think some of it was estimated. Some of it was based upon samples. But anyway, you know, so then the other thing that you, uh, you look at with, with all this stuff is we'll think about when you look at most of the time they have something, you know, total return. So total return just means it includes the change in the underlying market value, but it also includes dividends that were paid and sort of assumes that those are reinvested. Um, and there's an interesting challenge with that as well, but And then sometimes data is presented as just nominal returns, nominal means not adjusted for inflation, or it's a a real return, and that's adjusted for inflation. So that's just a fancy way for saying, look, if your stocks went up 10% one year, but inflation went up 10%, you actually didn't, on a real return basis, you got zero, because all of your return was eaten up by inflation. So uh, it kind of depends on that. So... When we look at the S&P 500 data and, and, and later, one of the things I want to do with this episode too, I want to talk about uh, probabilities of certain returns. And I also want to discuss sort of the issue in the bond market where a lot of these historical returns had periods of much higher interest rates. And so that's kind of a, a challenge. Of course, I can always refer back to the power of compounding, and that's true. And, but I, I do want to spend a little bit of time on, on probabilities. Now, before we we get into, I want to get into some of the numbers and then go through some of the issues. But it's worth mentioning, right? Anytime you get an investment perspective or a tear sheet or anything like that, you always see this disclaimer, you know, historical returns are not indicative of future returns. Past performance is no uh, indication of future results. And Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And by the way, you know, being and everyone who's listened knows that, uh, you know, we're big advocates of, of hedging. And so, you know, trying to time the market, it's not really, um, you know, I'd, I'd rather see people be in the market, but be properly hedged. And obviously, it depends on everyone's situation. But, um, you know, when you have hedges, it takes away some of this guesswork of, of trying to figure out, you know, is the market undervalued, overvalued. But um, just on a historical perspective, I'll give you some numbers. And I wrote an article at the end of, uh, let me see. actually, this is in January of 2020. I wrote this, and I'll put a link to this. Um, this is on the zegafinancial.com site. And I looked at and I said, you know, what, what were the, the compounded annual growth rate by, by the decade? And compounded annual growth rate is a total return. It's nominal, so not real. Um, does not account or adjust for inflation, and so the the 2010s on the S and P 500 13.33 um, percent, great, that's great, right? Remember the rule of 72 says that if you get you know around 7.2 percent compounded annual growth rate, um, you would get a double over 10 years, and so that's almost you know twice that. So um, in the 2000s. And this is interesting. So I went back to the 1900s. Only two decades had negative total returns, 0.12% in the 1930s. And then, of course, you had uh, negative 0.99%. Let's just call it negative 1% in the 2000s. Of course, in the 2000s, you had the tech crash. You also had 2008. So despite all that, it was a lost decade Where, you know, if if you didn't add any money, didn't take any money out, and you just put it in uh, the beginning of the decade, at the end of the decade, you had sort of annualized 1% loss every year. But all the other decades were, you know, some were better than others, but, you know, 1950s plus 19.6%, 1980s, 17.68%, 1990s, 18.30%. So um, just to kind of give you a perspective there, when I went back and I looked at the data... And this goes back to, uh, let me see, nine, yeah, 1928. So I say 1926 for the, uh, the modern uh, NYU Stern data, I meant 1928. So, um, and, and by the way, the, there's, there's a nuance here. When you look at simple average, simple average just takes all of the years, returns, and divides by the, um, you know, it's just the simple average, right? When you look at a, a geometric average or a compound a CAGR, Kager, compound annual growth rate, um, that's sort of more representative of what the investor actually realized, um, and, and that doesn't account for money coming in, money coming out. That changes the the uh, calculus there. But you know, the compound annual growth rate, in 1928 through, and I did this through 2020. Good news, right? Um, Average annual compounded growth rate nine point seven nine percent on on stocks. So the numbers have been uh, you know pretty positive on stocks. Obviously, depending upon when you invest, you know, like I said, I just went through the decades. Right, if you invested in the two thousands, um, that was kind of a flat decade, right? Negative one percent annualized compounded growth rate, uh, but over time, so. Let's, let's kind of, okay, and here's, here's the other issue with, um, so here's sort of an issue with, with these. And I'm going back to 1928. I mentioned the Schiller data. I mentioned the Siegel data. Um, so up until the 1970s, I think it was late 70s, you couldn't buy the S&P 500 in a fund. There was no fund. There was no index fund. And I think Vanguard was the first one who did this. I think it was the late 70s where you could buy a mutual fund that created in the same weights and proportions of the S&P 500, the, the index. So you put you know $5,000 in it, you buy the whole index. And I believe you could do dividend reinvestment within that as well. And so remember, total return accounts for the change in market value, also the change in or accounting for dividends paid out to you. So- but the one of the issues, though, if you you know if you're looking at data from the '30s, '20s, '1800s, right, um, there was this thing called commissions. You know, commissions were are zero now, but they weren't always zero, and they were certainly lower once the internet trading came about. But I can remember placing trades in the '90s and you know buying 100 shares or something, and it was like I don't know. You know, it could have been fifty bucks, could have been hundred bucks. It used to be these formulas, dependent upon the shares and the value. But let's just look at this. Um, so we know that you couldn't have bought a mutual fund until the late 1970s. Uh, S and P 500 index fund. It wasn't until the I think it was the mid 90s, maybe 94, 93, that the uh, the spiders came out. The SPY, which is an ETF, which with one click, now you can buy the entire S and P 500. Um, those products weren't available. So think about this. If you wanted to buy all of the stocks in the the S&P 500, imagine you buy 500 stocks, 500 shares, no, 500 different positions, and your commission was $50 a share. It would cost you $25,000, $25,000 to buy those 500 shares. Uh, Sorry, 500 companies. Uh, And if it was $100, um, you know, commission per per transaction, let's say. Did I say share before? You know, $100, it would be $50,000 in commissions. So think about that. You buy 500 companies. If it's 50 bucks each, 25K. If it's 100 bucks in commissions each, it's it's $50,000, right? And then if you get paid a, a dividend and you want to reinvest that, there was really no mechanism to, to do that. So you would have to, to go out and take that dividend payment and then buy corresponding shares. And you couldn't buy fractional shares. You know, I remember there used to be those TV commercials where they, I forget what the firm was, but they, you could buy a, a list of all the companies that did, uh, free DRIP programs, dividend reinvestment plan, DRIP, right? And I think it was, I don't know, maybe 100 different companies or 200 different companies, but you could buy shares directly from the transfer agent, meaning um, if, if there was a, you know, back then physical certificates were held by what's called the transfer agent. They weren't held in, in a street name in a brokerage firm. And so, you know, you could, you could send a check to them and then they would, Invest uh, in, you know, free way of getting the shares and then you can invest dividends, right? But anyway, my point of doing that is I think it's okay to, to use total returns and historical, but I do think it's important to point out that a lot of the stuff that we do today wasn't available back then, wasn't available back then. So just a little, little aside there. So here's where I, I stand on. On historical returns, look. Um, historical returns, and I think there are there are real benefits to to looking at historicals because they inform us, inform our opinion, and help us understand uh, historically over a long period of time how volatile an asset has been. Uh, we can compute the the compounded annualized growth rate that's very, you know, very good. Um, the more years or the more data that you have, uh, the less, you know, standard error. So standard error is just a fancy way in statistics for um, depending upon your sample size, how big is maybe the variation in, in, your, uh, in your average. I'll leave it there. I don't want to do a whole statistics uh, podcast. You'd be, <laughs> you would turn that off really quickly. But I think there's value in these. And I think you can look at these. And, and I think the good news is that over time, um, you know, stocks have provided a, a good return. And we look at the compounded annual growth rate, we look through the, the different decades. And the good news is most decades were positive, going back to the 1900s. And the ones that weren't, you know, weren't awful. Uh, certainly if you were, you know, depending upon your timing, right? But that's the good news. And that's one of the reasons why, since we don't know what we're going to get going forward, that's the value of using a hedged equity strategy, as I've been talking about for a couple of years now. Uh, That's the value of actually going in and saying, you know, I'm going to buy the market, but I'm going to have some hedges, hedges to the downside in place. So maybe I give up a little bit on the upside, but I limit my my downside, and that takes away sort of the timing aspect. And this really matters too, depending upon where you are in your investment life cycle. If you're just if you're young and and just starting out, just you know periodically put money into a fund, and and you probably don't need any hedges. Just keep keep doing what you're doing. If you're if you have a base of assets, um, or if you're you know, getting towards the latter part of your career early in retirement. Yeah, and then then a lot of this stuff becomes really important. So I think I think it's um the other thing that's interesting is that you can see uh, you've got reference points. And so you know everyone always asks us, hey, how'd you guys do in two thousand eight? Or how'd you do in February or March of 2020? So it can provide a little bit of a a reference point and somewhat of a little bit of a stress test. Now, the other side of this too is that, you know, let's look at 2007, 2008. If you would have looked at historical drawdowns in housing prices or the probability of housing selling off that much, uh, there probably wasn't a, a, a real high probability of that happening. So sometimes these these things come up, and you know, look, uh, they—it's a different situation that causes an issue, and you really don't have any historical precedent for that. Now, where I do think historical returns pose a little bit of an issue is in the bond market. And look, when I wrote my book, Broken Pie Charts, uh, by the way, what a great Labor Day gift that would be for anybody that you know, or even somebody you don't know. Just go ahead and buy the book and uh, broken pie charts on Amazon. Um, who doesn't give gifts for Labor Day? Anyways. So when I wrote that book, I pulled data down from the the bank of England on historical short-term rates. And, you know, look, they had, they had information going back. I think it was back to the 1500s. I'd have to, I have to look in my chapter in the book. Um, if you get it, you'll have that chart, by the way. So I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Great Labor Day gift never too early to start shopping for uh, Halloween, give it out, you know, as kids come to the door, why not give them a copy of the book? You know, start them out investing early. But the, the challenge with the bond market is, is a little different. And the reason why it's different is that, you know, we I can look and I can, you know, go back and say, and I'll just tell you what, what the numbers are. If I look at, let's say, something like the 10-year treasury bond, going back to 1928, uh, the geometric average or, you know, compound annual growth rate is just south of 5%. And, you know, where a lot of these 60-40 portfolios, guess what? They might be using historical averages right like that. But you know what's different right now? No surprise here. It's the interest rate. And right now, you know, the 10-year treasury is around, what, one3 Two, five percent, something around there. So, you know, you go back to the late 1970s, and I know what you're gonna say, that's a different period. We had inflation, absolutely. But, you know, you had treasuries yielding 10, 13%. And so on a total return basis, where you have not only the the change in in the market value, but you've also got the interest that's paid, much like a, a dividend is paid in stocks. And we're certainly in a different time period right now. The other thing with, with bonds and treasuries is they have this sensitivity to interest rates. So when you think about a treasury bond that was paying you know, 10% back in, uh, or you know, 7% back in late, uh, late 90s, right? So you have this bond that's paying 7%, and its sensitivity to changes in interest rates is much less. Now, with bonds so rates so low, any change in interest rates is going to have a bigger impact on the underlying market value of that bond. And so, we've never had rates really this low uh, for this. You know, certainly since two thousand eight, we've had really low rates. Uh, rates hit, you know, unbelievable lows in the in two thousand twenty. They're still really, really low right now. So. I do think this is one of those things when people start evaluating a 60-40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, where they they sort of run metrics on, you know, expected return and and all this stuff. And they're including many years of of uh, you know, bonds that have much higher yields. I think it does become a little problematic. I'm not saying bonds are gonna go down by quite a bit. I I mean I, I will say that um the modified duration or effective duration, which is really the sensitivity to interest rates or changes to interest rates, has never been higher So you know if we if we did get a material uptick in in rates, you would see bonds um, you know go down and I think we saw that in the first quarter of this year when rates spiked I mean got I mean the ten year did it go from 0.7 to you know, 1.6% or something like that. And I think the the bond market had its worst quarter since, I don't know, uh, it was worst quarter in 100 years or something like that. So, you know, I, I do think that's that's a little problematic to use all that stuff. Um, but, you know, we just don't know. I mean, the, the numbers are the numbers, right? Um, and I'm not saying bond, you shouldn't own bonds. I'm not saying you should own them. Shouldn't or should them? Should own them. But I do think it's just something to keep in mind. The other thing that historicals can do is they can give us probabilities. And so we know that if we have, um, you know, just a simple, we use the simple average, right? Um, And we sort of look at historical annualized returns. We would say, and by the way, the simple average on the S and P five hundred was about eleven point six four percent. The where I ran it. And so right at the average, we would say there's a probability of about you know 50% probability that, that you would get that return. And the probability of getting a return here, looking at these numbers here, a 40% return in a, in a given year of a simple average, right? Um, you have about a, a 7% probability. Probabilities are not certainties, right? Um, but it was interesting though, you know, you remember at one point in 2008 to 9, the s p p 500 was down about 55% or 50%. Um, the probability of being negative 55% is 0.03%. Simple probabilities, I didn't do any, you know, fancy normal distribution, right, for those of you listening who have a, a background in probabilities. This is sort of back of the envelope stuff, right? But um, but we know that that happened, right? And that goes back to the idea of of having protection in portfolios, either buffers or hedges, in case you do get those outlier years. Um, by the way, the the bond market is is interesting because there, the bond market returns are much more. Um, you don't have as as great of a. Distribution. In other words, the, the left and the right tails aren't quite as far out. Um, you know, but if you look and you say, what, what's the probability of bonds uh, losing, you know, 10% in a year? It's only 2.29%. Um, so and by the way, you know, if uh, if interest rates went up, you know, a little bit over 1% from here. Uh, on a ten-year bond, you would expect to lose almost you know ten percent from there, right? So, kind of give you a little perspective on on probabilities. So, um, maybe I'll do another episode just on probabilities. Maybe not. All right. So, what can we say from Are they useful or useless? I think historicals. If you've got uh, you've got to look at a couple things. And I think I already explained the bond situation where if you're using data that has different periods that are really different from today, um, maybe, you know, having those in the historical return isn't quite as helpful to you. Um, But I do think with enough years and enough data sets, uh, enough data, you know, you have a pretty good idea of sort of what to, you know, what's happened in the past. And it also can inform your your knowledge about the future. And the caveat always is, you just don't know. You don't know, are we going to get an outlier year in you know 2022 or this year or whatever? Or are we going to get more of a normal year? Uh, I will tell you that the stock market is up more than it's down. And there's been a lot of times where you have intra-year drawdowns that wind up being positive, um, which is quite interesting. So, I think they're helpful. But like I said, with the the total return thing on and the dividend investment uh, thing with with stocks, you just couldn't do that. So, you know, if somebody said, "Well, if I would have you know bought the S and P and reinvested my dividends from 1950 to 1970," yeah, you probably couldn't do it. And. It would have cost you so much in commissions and the fees for dividend reinvestment, and I would have had to buy all these stocks. And by the way, you know the funds, the the ETFs and the mutual funds who, who mirror the the S and P or, or other indexes. You know, it's based upon an index. When that index, the weights change or members come in and out. You remember the whole big deal about Tesla joining the the S and P five hundred. Um, those indexes have to trim shares, add more in others to make sure the weighting is is the same. Imagine, I just mentioned those commissions. Imagine if your portfolio, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you had to make changes to adjust the weighting or, or you had a couple people go out, a couple of people come in, I meaning companies, not people, but companies coming in, companies coming out of the index. You've got to buy and sell those. That's, that's sort of every time. Um, so it just really wasn't cost effective, but one of the lessons, though, I think is important to, to sort of express is the value of compounding is still there. And I mentioned earlier the rule of 72. Um, quite simply, it means if you take 72 and you divide it by your return, that's how, how many years to double. And by the way, if I, I know if you, um, if you take a financial calculator and you you know multiply, let's say, an amount of money times, you know, and, and compounded at 7.2% over, uh, you know, 10 years, you'd be like, wait a second. Um, it gets us a little more than that. Yeah, that's right. It's not a perfect, you know, absolutely double. But going back to the historical returns, um, the power of compounding is real. And the power of compounding, for those that don't understand that concept or, or not familiar with it, it's just, you know, if you have $100,000, and then you do get around 7.2% a year and you you compound to 200,000. Well, now if you get another 7.2% over the next 10 years, then you go from 200 to 400,000 because your base of money was higher. And so it sort of snowballs on itself. And that compounding effect is, is pretty powerful. And if you're adding money on a periodic basis, it also helps things to grow. And by the way, if you're adding money on a periodic basis, you know, In theory, you're, you're buying less when the market's high and buying more when the market's low. And on the flip side, and I keep saying it again and again, the, the reason to have some protection or buffer in the portfolio is that the less you lose, uh, the easier it is to come back from. It. We know that if you take a 50% loss, you got to get 100% to ba- get back to break even. Uh, the less you lose, the easier it is to recover. Um, and so compounding is real compounding is powerful and risk management in portfolios hedging or buffers is also really powerful um, because the less you lose the easier it is to come back and the less you lose um, as you get the you know any sort of comeback in the market um, you actually can can outperform quite a bit from a uh, you know for someone who is took a really big loss. It takes a long time to get back. So, all right. uh, So for this episode, remember, uh, uh, my book buying, uh, no, that's Jay's book buying hedge Buy that one too, buy, buy two, uh, broken pie chart, uh, on Amazon. I'll put a link to that. Uh, if you come looking shopping for labor day, I'm joking. I know nobody buys labor day gifts, but anyway, I'll, I'll put those in there and I've got a lot of this historical return data in there. I, I, um, I've got the charts, the probabilities, all that stuff from stocks and bonds. So um, I actually published that. And then rather than wasting time rating, reviewing, and starring, go ahead and, and share this episode with uh, someone who doesn't listen to podcasts. You got to teach them how, you got to show them what apps to use and all that stuff, uh, or somebody who does listen to podcasts. But go ahead and share it uh, and keep the, uh, the ideas coming for future shows. Uh, we're going to have some guests coming up in subsequent weeks. Uh, I'll let you know who when it uh, gets a little closer. Or you'll just, you'll just see the episode drop. And I think Jay's going to come back as well, uh, my semi-permanent co-host. Uh, we'll, we'll probably do something in the next few weeks as well. So, all right, folks. Um, have a good weekend or have a good week. And we'll talk to you next week.